Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zayd Wahab, and today we'll discuss the ascension and reign of Al-Mu'tadid's son, Ali. Thanks to the considerable exertions of his father and grandfather before him, the Abbasids were doing quite well by the time Ali took the throne. All that momentum propelled his caliphate to greater heights, despite a hands-off approach by our new caliph. His time in charge marked a zenith for Abbasid power, and it's worth paying close attention to some of its ostensibly trivial developments. Episode 80 Al-Muktafi While I always endeavor to formulate a coherent narrative, you should expect a modicum of dissonance in our discussion today. Al-Muktafi's short reign was a great time for the Caliphate, but things were about to take a turn for the worse, and later historians look back to around this point in the Abbasid journey in search of an explanation. We don't need to worry about the Caliphate's collapse just yet. But all this retrospective attention means that Al-Muktafi's relatively unexciting tenure was keenly analyzed. There's a lot going on, not in terms of events for us to cover, but themes that we'll need to introduce. To keep things straight, I'm going to resort to the same sectional approach I used for Ahmad ibn Tulun, as I think it'll help us stay focused on the most relevant parts of our wide-ranging discussion. Section 1, in which we take note of a shift in our primary material. It's best we get this out of the way before we get started with our narrative. Al-Tabari's compendium of oral material is the main work I've been using for this show. Now that we've progressed this far with our narrative, we are well into its author's adult life. As such, his book no longer contains conflicting testimony told and retold by previous generations. Instead, we find a much tidier sequence of events, many of which our author lived through himself. While the coherence of personal experience is welcome, his account lacks the benefit of hindsight. Since Al-Tabari's history ended before Abbasid decline set in, it fails to focus on themes later sources put at the root of the state's collapse. Al-Mas'udi's history does a little better on that front. It was written towards the middle of the 10th century, and its author enjoyed a fuller view of the caliphate's downfall. I have found myself relying on his book more and more, though its nature as a record of historical curiosities, for lack of a better word, means its entries can be a hit or a miss. It's great when he's speculating about some relevant court intrigue, not so much when he's describing the sweetness of a eunuch's sweat. In light of these deficiencies in both our sources, I've begun to rely on some later works as supplements, Miskaway and Ibn Kathir's histories extensively, though not exclusively. I thought it was important to note this change 
especially since I've always emphasized the role of oral material in our sources. Those sorts of narrations have been declining for quite a while now, ever since Al-Mutawakkil's reign in the 850s or so. We can confidently say that by this point, the Arabs had developed a tradition of keeping written histories. For the period we're covering together now, there are many better sources of information than the ones that we've been relying on. There were chroniclers dedicated to preserving the histories of their cities or their fields of expertise. I'm going to avail myself of any material I can get my hands on, even as we close out our investigation of Arab history to coincide with the end of Al-Mas'udi's magnum opus. Section 2, in which we introduce the man who would be king and highlight how his father kept him away from military command. Ali was born in the late 870s, just as the Abbasids were about to hit their stride. Although their state was beset by dangerous threats, his grandfather Talha had recently overcome the Safarids outside Baghdad, markedly improving the dynasty's odds for survival. Much better days lay ahead, but the caliphate still struggled throughout Adi's childhood. He doesn't come up until his father took the throne in 892, but that's when things really kicked into high gear for the 15-year-old Adi. Al-Mu'tadid wasn't content with simply announcing his choice of heir. He wanted to make sure his eldest son had the prerequisite experience for the role. Early in his reign, the caliph appointed Ali governor of a decent chunk of northern Iran, a large area around Rai. These rich lands had been seized from the Dulafids, who were powerless to object. Ironically, it was their recent Pyrrhic victory against Rafi' ibn Harthama that had both won the Dulafids control of Rai and weakened them enough to be bullied by the caliphate. Ali ruled this province from Rai for a few years, but by the end of the century, Zaydi attacks on the city were getting a little too dangerous for daddy's liking. Instead of providing Ali with the means to fend for himself, Al-Mu'tadid reappointed his precious heir to Mesopotamia, an area the caliph had just personally pacified. Ali moved his office to Raqqa and assumed responsibility for all the lands from northern Iraq to the Byzantine frontier. You'd think that a long, dangerous border with the Byzantine Empire would make a warrior or general out of Ali, but just like with his previous posting, the job seems to have had absolutely no military aspect. In his four years in charge of the area, he's not credited with leading or even dispatching any of the armies involved in the many battles our sources describe. I found the complete absence of military exposure to be a strange omission from Ali's curriculum. Al-Mu'tadid purposefully gave his son real responsibilities to prepare him for the job, then ended up keeping him away from one of its most important aspects. I don't think Al-Mu'tadid had any reason to worry about a coup. My guess is that he was just incapable of sharing control of the armies with anyone else. Whatever it was, the caliph may have thought that he wasn't depriving his son of anything important, since his loyal troops would follow his heir as an extension of himself. If so, then he missed the point. 
filthy by default, was no substitute for a personal relationship between the caliph and his men. Section 3, in which we begin our discussion of the new caliph's reign, only to dwell on an early example of the perils that lay ahead. The 25-year-old Ali was in Raqqa when his father passed away. Those around him immediately swore their allegiance and were the first to greet him as their caliph. He wrote to Baghdad, took pledges, and signaled continuity of government by honoring the wazir at court. He adopted the title Al-Muktafi Billah, he who is fulfilled by God. The earliest decrees we read about were to dole out bonuses to the troops and pardons to the folks packed into his father's torture jails. Al-Mu'tadid had appropriated whole neighborhoods to use as detention centers, and the return of these homes to their rightful owners is celebrated in our sources. Grants and pardons earned al-Muktafi plenty of goodwill, a promising start to be sure. But the decision we need to focus on a little more is the one about keeping his father's wazir in charge. Looking back at our history, it's clear that the children of powerful caliphs tended to be easily swayed by the administrations left behind by their illustrious predecessors. We saw this with the father-son pairs of al-Mansur and al-Mahdi, Rashid and Al-Amin, and most recently Al-Mu'tasim and Al-Wathiq. If that caliph-packed sentence didn't throw you off, then let me tell you, I am really proud of us. This would have sounded like gibberish to me too a couple years back. This isn't an exploration of a theoretical concern. Al-Mas'udi and later sources do consider the caliph to have been overly influenced by his father's wazir. It's kind of a long story, and this wazir will pass away three years into al-Muktafi's reign, so it's not a particularly consequential story. But I still feel we do need to explore it. In a way, it's a warning about how fast things could go wrong if ambitious men were left with no oversight. The Abbasid state needed a commanding presence on the throne to function properly. An absentee caliph simply left too much power in the hands of his officials. In our first episode on Al-Mu'tadid's reign, we introduced the triumvirate who wielded true power. There was the caliph, of course, his military chief Bedr, and his wazir Ubaidullah. The trio worked very well together, a big part of why the state was so stable during Al-Mu'tadid's time. In 901, the wazir Ubaidullah passed away and was succeeded in the role by his son Qasim, who had assisted him in the duties of his office throughout much of his career. Qasim's tenure marked the end of the cooperation between the civil administration and the military establishment. We find a myriad explanations purporting to describe his animus, from the confusing to the ridiculous. After you strip away the rumors and conjecture, what they amount to is a condemnation of Qasim as someone who pursued power for its own sake. The new wazir tried to make his office dominant over both the army and the caliph. If the charge seems a little overblown, it's probably because Qasim's ambition is the first bad thing to emerge from the administration in a while. 
later histories single him out and sometimes over-problematize this affair. The military leadership was Qasim's first target when he became wazir, and many commanders were disgraced, banished, or redeployed far away from Iraq. The next year, Qasim took advantage of al-Mu'tadid's passing by putting some personal enemies to death before the heir arrived in Baghdad, especially those he thought the new caliph might pardon. There are a handful of similar tales, of prisoners he disliked dying under mysterious circumstances. But all these examples are the small fry. Al-Qasim's most infamous triumph was over Badr himself, a victory he is roundly criticized for. Badr was in Faris when al-Muktafi ascended to the throne. He'd governed the rich province ever since he'd taken it from the Safarids a few years back. At first, several of his captains were recalled to the capital and awarded prizes by the court. Next, Qasim convinced the caliph to recall Badr from Faris and offer him other, less desirable assignments to pick from. These moves were enough to put Badr on guard. He figured his best course of action was to make his case to al-Muktafi in person, and so he decided to write to Baghdad. The wary general was promised safe passage across the Tigris by a religious functionary sent by the court, only to be betrayed and met with Qasim's assassins on the boat. This affair is widely reviled because of the flagrant violation of a holy oath, and also because it cost the caliphate one of its stalwart champions. Without Badr, Faris soon reverted to Safarid control. It was a price the wazir was happy to pay, to get rid of the general and extend his own grip on the state. Our sources often depict Qasim as a scheming official who turned al-Muktafi against his father's loyal general. This focus on him is a little unfair if you ask me, because it minimizes the role of the caliph. It was the absence of a strong leader which allowed the ruthless wazir to eliminate Badr, the only man whose authority could plausibly be said to rival his own. Qasim had cynically but correctly interpreted the caliph's vote of faith in him to mean that he was now the one in the driver's seat. Instead of replacing the wazir for his overreach, the caliph relied upon him more than ever in the aftermath of Badr's assassination. Qasim didn't trust any of the Turkish military commanders, and he empowered a member of the secretarial class as a replacement for Badr. Muhammad bin Sulaiman, who'd served as a secretary to high-ranking generals and wazirs before, was promoted to head of military command. This may be the first time since the Baramika that we find a civilian in charge of military affairs. Muhammad actually did really well. By maintaining excellent relationships with the army's commanders, he served as the perfect intermediary between them and the powerful Qasim in Baghdad. Badr's assassination took place in late 902, and Qasim himself would pass away only two years later. His secretary Abbas succeeded him as wazir, more proof that al-Muktafi shied away from tinkering with his father's administration, trusting it to run itself instead. 
I don't want to blame the caliph too much, though, because Abbas turned out to be a pretty good choice as well. The problem was that Qasim's tenure had shown that a wazir could operate above the law, making the role irresistible to those possessed by an insatiable appetite for power. But enough about the wazirs. Let's turn our attention to the caliph himself. Section 4, in which we'll discuss al-Muqtafi's short time in charge. This caliph only ruled for six and a half years, so we should be able to cover his entire reign, especially because we'll shunt all discussion of the Qaramidha until next time, when we'll devote an entire episode to understanding the evolution of Shia ideology and the emergence of this strange and vindictive offshoot. Accounts about the wars against the Qaramidha make up the vast majority of the material we find in Al-Muqtafi's reign, so prepare to be surprised at how fast six good years can fly by. All you need to know about the Qaramata for now is that at this stage they were a loose confederation of nomadic Arab tribes and a terrifying threat to the remote communities they raided. They were already a danger when Al-Muqtafi came to the throne in 902, and by 903 he decided to send his armies against them. The Qaramata were using the Syrian desert as a base to attack outlying towns in Iraq. Their raids on the Abbasids were a nuisance, but their attacks on the floundering Tolunid dynasty in Syria were far more destabilizing. The task of quelling the Qaramata fell to Muhammad ibn Sulaiman, the secretary cum generalissimo. He enlisted the help of Hussein ibn Hamdan, leader of the Mesopotamian Hamdanids, the Arab tribal leader with the most experience fighting off insurgent nomadic tribes. I'll spare you the details, but the pair did really well. They mocked up around Iraq, then into Syria. For the first time ever, the local population welcomed the Abbasid arrival, and some major Syrian cities switched allegiance back to the caliphate. The Tulunids had failed to maintain order, and their house was distracted and racked with discord in far away Egypt. For his decisive victories over the Qaramata, Muhammad ibn Sulaiman received a triumphal procession in Baghdad. His next assignment was to follow up on his success in Syria by leading an army through it and into Egypt in 904. Financial mismanagement by its leading cabal had bankrupted the Tulunid state, and tensions between its commanders were at an all-time high. Al-Muqtafi was wise to try and capitalize on the situation, and Muhammad ibn Sulaiman was the ideal man for the job. He'd started his career as Lu'lu's secretary, a Tulunid general who had defected to the Abbasid side back in the early 80s. A decade later, Muhammad was the official responsible for integrating the Tulunid generals who had come to Baghdad after Khumaruya's assassination. These were the men he would rely upon to reconquer Egypt, and they had a ton of connections they could leverage. All it took was for Muhammad ibn Sulaiman to arrive in Syria at the head of 10,000 men for the Turks serving the Tulunids to switch over to the Abbasids. First it was the governor of Damascus, then a couple commanders in Palestine, and finally, in November 904, 
the highest-ranking general in Egypt defected to the caliphate along with all his men. Dynastic infighting took care of the Tolunids after that. The defections put a lot of pressure on the ruling cadre. The young Harun was assassinated and an uncle of his raised in his place. It was too little too late, however. Muhammad ibn Suleiman's army barreled into their capital of Al-Qata'a in January 905, putting an end to the Tulunid dynasty. It took another year to pacify local dissent, but when all was said and done, the Abbasid Caliphate had finally reabsorbed Egypt and Syria, a momentous achievement. The last three years of Al-Muqtafi's reign were also triumphant, though not as eventful. In 906, Al-Tabari reports that parts of Yemen sent a delegation to Baghdad, asking the Abbasids to pick their next governor. In 907, there are mentions of an impressive victory over the Byzantines and the sack of a couple towns. The Caliphate and Empire were evenly matched by this point, and our sources contain accounts about victories on either side. We also hear about a couple prisoner exchanges between the two powers during these years. In 908, a rebellion of 10,000 Kurds was put down with relative ease in Asbahan. That's pretty much it. Maybe I cut the last few years a little short for dramatic effect, but besides the war against the Qaramata, there really wasn't much going on. The nomadic Arab agitators proved to be a persistent threat to the Abbasids and were only eliminated entirely from Iraq and Syria towards the end of the decade. The movement survived and thrived in Bahrain, where it evolved into something even more dangerous to the Ummah, a topic for next time. Section 5, in which we discuss this caliph's succession, reflect on his time in charge, and comment on its relevance to the coming decline. Al-Muqtafi didn't get to enjoy the fruits of his autonomous administration's labor for very long, and he passed away only six and a half years into his reign. He was still in his early thirties, but it wasn't too sudden because he'd always been sickly and had suffered from chronic illnesses for most of his life. Considering his poor health, it's even wilder that Al-Muqtafi put so little effort into succession planning. In fact, there's disagreement on whether the caliph had made any arrangements whatsoever. Al-Tabari is silent on the issue, but Al-Mas'udi said that while on his deathbed, Al-Muqtafi instructed the wazir to elevate his much younger half-brother to the throne. Other accounts deny this, saying the wazir must have acted independently because the caliph was comatose for weeks before he finally passed away in the summer of 908. The reason for all this disagreement is because of how badly things turned out for the caliphate. Al-Muqtafi was succeeded by a weak 13-year-old caliph who allowed corruption to run rampant, and scholars of collapse are eager to find somebody to blame. Few blame the popular Al-Muqtafi. Most go for his wazir Abbas instead saying the official was tempted to pick a boy he could manipulate instead of a man who could do without him. Others still blame the competing secretarial factions for planting that idea in the wazir's head, 
or parts of the military for championing a Abbasid rival. Suffice it to say that this scale of succession was messy, and it left behind an even messier swirl of controversy. We'll cover the affair in detail down the line, but for now, let's agree to credit al-Muktafi with the appointment. It'll make him the last Abbasid to pick his successor for over two centuries. I hope this gives you an idea of how steep the coming collapse will be. Al-Muktafi is remembered very positively. Better than he deserves, if you ask me. You know, I feel a little guilty for omitting something important about his father, so please excuse the following interruption. My description of Al-Mu'tadid may have made him out to be a little bit of an enemy of the sciences, when in fact he sponsored some of the Ummah's most influential thinkers. Despite his initial hostility to philosophy, the translation movement of Greek works into Arabic was revived in his reign. The caliph even spoke Greek himself, which he must have learned from his Byzantine mother. His patronage went beyond all things Greek, though. Al-Mu'tadid didn't just order the construction of pleasure palaces and monuments, but also a hospital bearing his name, directed by the polymathic logician-physician-philosopher Abu Bakr al-Razi. Like his father, Al-Muktafi is mainly remembered as a builder. One of the minarets he'd commissioned, for centuries the tallest structure in the city, still stands today as part of Baghdad's oldest mosque. The palaces he built or expanded served as the caliph's official residence for generations down the line, longer than any before them. This reputation comes without a hint of decadence. Al-Muktafi is also described as thrifty in our sources, with a healthy treasury despite the generous spending he lavished on the capital. I suppose it's no wonder why our Baghdadi authors praise this caliph so highly. But there's another, more ominous reason for all this appreciation. Our histories have a tendency to look back nostalgically when a precipitous collapse lay right ahead. They may regard al-Muktafi with grace, but their focus on his first wazir, Qasim, clearly shows that they're looking for something that foreshadows what's about to happen. Al-Muktafi lacked a personal relationship with the army, and he trusted his father's state to run smoothly without his oversight. These particular flaws allowed his ambitious wazir Qasim to dominate the state. But when Qasim died, the two men he left in charge of the military and court served al-Muktafi without issue. Muhammad reconquered Syria and Egypt, and Abbas grew the state's surplus year on year. So what exactly was the problem? Whatever happened to all's well that ends well? That's a deceptively difficult question to answer. To put it plainly, there was nothing wrong with al-Muqtafi's reign. It marked a real high point for the post-recovery caliphate. But depending on the way one describes this state during this caliph's tenure, a number of cracks can be perceived or imagined. These can then be connected to the way the impending collapse unfolded, starting with al-Muqtafi's disastrous succession. We'll go through the many different takes when we pick up our narrative again, 
but let me close out our discussion today with my personal opinion on the problem of Al-Muqtafi's reign. To me, the Caliph's time in charge had two different phases, Qasim and post-Qasim. The deficiencies of the first are obvious. The wazir was literally unrestrained in his pursuit of power, even at considerable cost to the caliphate. The problems of the second phase are more insidious. It's true that Qasim left competent appointees in positions of authority before he kicked the bucket, but that only ensured that the caliph could remain uninvolved in the management of the state. It also gave the unfortunate impression that the Abbasid Caliphate was not merely healthy, but indestructible. It could survive a distracted caliph, a power-hungry wazir, and a decapitated military. Way beyond survive, flourish, to reach heights not known since the halcyon days of old. It was an extremely misleading image, to the detriment of the entire ummah. I hate leaving things on a cliffhanger, but it kind of feels like there's no avoiding it today. I've been explicit about how a collapse is imminent, arguably incipient even, with no intention of actually getting into it. Worse still, it won't even be our next topic of discussion either. Instead, we'll focus on the Shia, recapping the sect's journey through history thus far. It's more than an interesting thematic break. Our main goal will be to introduce and contextualize two Shia offshoots which will play a major role in the breakdown of Abbasid authority, the Qaramita and the Fatimids. Next time, here on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power.